What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be bringing you part nine of the case of serial killer Willie Picton in Vancouver, Canada. Let's get right to it. Once again, I'll be referencing Stevie Cameron's book, On the Farm, Robert William Picton, and the tragic story of Vancouver's missing women for much of this episode. Investigative journalist slash author Stevie Cameron covered the Picton case extensively. I can't recommend enough that you pick up a copy of her book. Last week, we left off with that phone call from Bill Hiscox. You know, the one where he had told Wayne Lang all about what Lisa Yeltsin had told him about the women's clothing, IDs, and purses out on the Picton farm. The same information that, according to Bill, he had already given to Al Howlett of the Vancouver Police Department. That all went down in July of 1998. It seemed like the case of the missing women was finally going to gain some traction. A call had been placed to Kim Rosmo, and maybe, just maybe, things were going to get serious. Lindsay Kynes, reporter with The Sun, ran another story on September 18, 1998. You see, the last one he ran linking the missing women had lit a fire under the family and friends of the women and the entire community. So he again reached out to the Vancouver police to get a statement. And this time, he was informed that VPD was setting up a group of investigators to review 40 missing women's cases. 16 of which had vanished from the downtown east side, and they dated all the way back to 1971. But they doubled down about the whole serial killer bit. Inspector Gary Greer stated to Kynes, We're in no way saying there's a serial murderer out there. We're in no way saying that all of these people missing are dead. We're not saying any of that. And Inspector Fred Biddlecombe went even further, 
stating that the women, quote, could have wanted to change their names for any number of reasons. They could have gone to another town with a new identity. They could have gone to the States. They could have married, and they don't want anyone to know what's going on. I mean, sure, there's a possibility anything could have happened. I guess it's quite possible that a magical unicorn had swooped down into Vancouver and flew the women to a fairy tale land, one where the sky rains gumdrops and they sing Kumbaya on Thursdays, and everyone gets a new name. But was that likely? It seems some people there at VPD thought it was more likely than a serial killer. Anyhow, 48 hours after that story ran, Kim Rosmo was back at his desk in Vancouver. He snatched up the files of the missing women and got down to business. After reviewing and analyzing the data, he was more convinced than ever that there was a strong possibility that a serial killer was operating right there in Vancouver. He met with McKay Dunn and Dixon and, according to On the Farm, told them, not only did he think it was statistically probable that a serial killer was on the loose, but that they had to, quote, get on it before the first body is found, when the killer is still active, so he doesn't shut down. So McKay Dunn, Rosmo, and Dixon wasted no time. They put together a report, including the statistical analysis and their recommendation that an investigation be launched into the possibility that the women's disappearances were the work of a serial killer. The trio then began to push their findings and recommendations up the chain of command. And just as quickly as it made it to the top, it was kicked back down to Inspector Biddlecombe. And Biddlecombe? He was furious. Oh, politics. Not only did Biddlecombe think the women were just out there getting married and changing their names, he hated Kim Rosmo and thought that whole geographic profiling thing was horseshit. He sure as hell didn't appreciate anyone telling him how to do his job. And Biddlecombe wasn't alone in his hatred of Rosmo. There were others in the department who not only deemed his work junk science, they resented the fact that he was gaining notoriety. Rosmo was a pioneer in the field of criminal profiling and was quickly becoming world-renowned, and they couldn't stand it. You don't become a pioneer without ruffling a few feathers. Rosmo was used to it. He still drafted a press release informing the public that VPD was trying to determine if a serial murderer was preying on people in the downtown east side, but the department refused to release it. Another huge opportunity up in smoke. For the second time, Rosmo told the Vancouver police there was a predator roaming the downtown east side, and again, he was shut down. A supporter of Rosmo and the Vancouver Police Department spoke to Stevie Cameron, stating, So the key to all of this, Rosmo's analysis, if they had followed his analysis and put the best and brightest onto it, they would have saved lives but they just paid lip service. We had an opportunity to save lives and we blew it. If Kim Rosmo had been given an opportunity to use his science to solve the missing women case, it wouldn't have been canceled. But Kim Rosmo wasn't out completely, at least not yet. Even though there wouldn't be an investigation into a serial murderer, there would be a review of the missing women's files a review to see if any of the cases were linked, 
and if any of the women had been found. This review would be known as Project Amelia. The team would consist of Jeremy Field, Gary Greer, Kim Rosmo, Al Howlett, and Lori Schenner. And just as the team was assembled and got to work, another woman vanished. 31-year-old Julie Louise Young was living in the Vernon rooms when she disappeared. There isn't much known about Julie. According to the report of the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry, Julie was last seen in Vancouver on October 8, 1998, but a missing persons report wasn't filed until five months later. She's described as a white female with dirty blonde hair and blue eyes, approximately 5'4 and 100 pounds, with a butterfly tattoo on her right ankle. Angela Rebecca Jardine was the next woman to vanish, roughly a month later on November 10, 1998. Angela had struggled practically since birth. Her mother, Deborah, recalled to Sally Armstrong in Chatelaine magazine, as documented in On the Farm, that soon after Angela's birth, she had been rushed off due to a lack of oxygen. As a result, there were delays in Angela's development and speech. Once Angela began school, she was bullied relentlessly by other kids. At the age of eight, doctors prescribed Ritalin and Halidol and even suggested her parents place her at an institution. Her parents refused and did everything in their power to help their daughter. They went from specialist to specialist searching for answers, but never really getting any. When she was 18, her parents arranged for her to live in a foster home. Angela loved it there, especially the woman who ran the home. But the government stepped in just a year later and removed her from foster care. She had aged out. Instead, they provided her with a hotel and an allowance. All this was too much for her, so she admitted herself to an institution but ran away just weeks later. She soon found herself on the downtown east side at the Balmoral Hotel, where she met a man who introduced her to drugs and prostitution. And while it wasn't an ideal life by any stretch of the imagination, for the first time in her life, Angela felt accepted. She fit in with the other women on the downtown east side, and they loved her just as she was. She did have some health issues, which were made worse by drug use, and she battled frequent infections and was hospitalized multiple times. However, throughout everything, she stayed in close contact with her family, and she had people looking out for her. There was a social worker and community advocates who were always checking in on Angela. Eventually, they placed her in the Portland Hotel, which was a nonprofit housing society right there in the downtown east side. There, Angela received medical and psychiatric services. Angela Jardine was full of joy and outgoing. She became involved in the community and volunteered at multiple events. She just loved helping people. And that's exactly what she had planned for November 20th, 1998. She had just spoken to her mother and told her all about it just 10 days earlier. She gushed about this big event she was going to volunteer at. She just couldn't wait. November 20th, 1998 finally came. Angela got all gussied up in a fluffy pink prom dress and high heels and headed down to Oppenheimer Park to help out at a community conference known as Out of Harm's Way, 
where experts would hand out information about drug abuse and resources for how to get help. Over 700 people attended. There was free food and entertainment. Angela showed up ready to work. She was there to greet people and show them to their seats. And she did just that, directing them with a huge smile. It was an all-day event, and Angela started out strong. But by about 3.30 in the afternoon, she started panhandling. You see, she was hungry and beginning to get dope sick. She finally scored $20 and headed off to get some dope and something to eat. The last time anyone saw her, she was still in her pink dress and headed in the direction of the Astoria Hotel. Less than a month later, another woman would go missing. 29-year-old Michelle Gurney was living at the Balmoral Hotel. According to CBC.ca, she was reported missing by her social worker and last seen at the St. James Community Society building on December 11, 1998. While there isn't much known about Michelle, Maggie Gisley, who you'll remember from previous episodes, was friends with many of the missing and murdered women on the low track and is now a powerful voice and advocate for those women and women just like them. Maggie spoke at a memorial gathering for Michelle and gave a glimpse into who Michelle Gurney was. She said, Hello, my name is Maggie. I am here today to remember my many friends that are on the missing women's list. Many of you knew me as Crazy Jackie. I lived on and off Skid Row from 1983 until March 13, 1998. I struggled with drug addiction and have been in and out of 22 recovery houses, 22 treatment centers, and numerous detoxes during this 15-year period. Michelle Gurney, I met you in 1986 on the streets of Hastings. Under your tough exterior, I found a strong, loyal friend. I remember the Christmas we spent in the Beacon Hotel together. We decided, instead of ignoring Christmas, that we would try and make it a nice experience for ourselves and others that lived in the hotel. Somehow, we managed to come up with a little tree with decorations. We made a huge feast of food and we traded clothes and jewelry for presents. We even sang songs around the Christmas tree. Strong, loyal, and giving. Words that could be used to describe many of the women of the downtown east side. Five days after Michelle Gurney was officially reported missing, another woman vanished. 20-year-old Marcella Creason, known as Marcy by her friends and family, disappeared on December 27, 1998, sometime between 1 and 2 in the morning. According to On the Farm, she had just been released from jail on prostitution charges. She called her mom Gloria from the police station and told her she was on her way over. You see, her mom, boyfriend, and Marcy's extended family were all waiting for her. They had planned to have a belated Christmas celebration. The dinner was ready, the presents were all wrapped, and everyone was waiting on her to get the party started. She placed that call to her mom and said she was on her way. She'd be there and only had to stop off and grab a pack of cigarettes. But Marcy never made it. In fact, her family never heard from her again. She was last seen somewhere near the Drake Hotel. And Marcy wouldn't be the last woman to disappear in 1998. Ruby Ann Hardy was 37 years old and a mother of three. 
No one knows the exact date or location in which Ruby vanished, and all that is known is that it was sometime in the year 1998. Ruby was a member of the Lake Helen First Nation and Red Rock Band. She was 5'2", weighed approximately 130 pounds, with brown eyes and brown hair. One of her daughters posted on a site for the women. It's documented in Cameron's book. The letter reads, I remember my mother as a strong woman who knew how to survive. Despite what people may think, my mother took great care of me and my sister and brother. She always made sure that we had food, shelter, and clothing. She was a loving mother that would do anything for her children. She did the best she could with what she had to work with. Despite her problems, I never questioned her love for us. I have come to realize that having an addiction is like having a disease. It takes a long time to get well again. I pray every night that my mother is safe and has started coping with her illness. There was a delay in reporting and Ruby Hardy wasn't officially listed as missing until 2002 when her brother made the report with the Vancouver police. While women continued to disappear, people in the Picton inner circle continued to talk. Sometime in early 1999, around January or February, according to Scott Chubb, as documented in On the Farm, Scott went to Dave Picton and told him he needed to, quote, Get Willie off the street to stop the murderin'. Y'all remember Scott Chubb, right? He was a longtime employee of Dave Picton. Chubb spent countless hours working for Dave on and around the farm. By 1999, his suspicions about Willie were growing. He knew about the attack on Sandra Ringwald. Everyone did. He'd seen women show up at the farm and then never be heard from again. He knew about Bill Hiscox and what he had informed Wayne Lang about on that phone call. And really, Bill Hiscox didn't need to tell Chubb about the women's clothes, purses, IDs, and jewelry. I mean, he had seen it all firsthand. But Dave shrugged it off. He knew Chubb wasn't going to go to the actual authorities or anything like that. He knew Chubb depended on a paycheck, and he was the one signing the checks. Besides that, he knew Chubb was scared shitless. He'd seen how things were handled on the farm. He wasn't about to rock that boat. Besides, Dave was planning a New Year's Eve party at Piggy's Palace. He had no time to listen to Chubb's bullshit about his brother. On December 31st, 1998, Dave, Willie, and their closest 1,500 friends rang in the New Year right there at the palace. There was a band, plenty of drugs, alcohol, bikers, and women. It was such a bash that the Pictons ended up hit with an injunction from the city, which should have shut them down. But in true Picton fashion, they ignored the law and the parties continued. On January 16, 1999, just a couple of weeks after the big bash, 22-year-old Jacqueline Michelle McDonnell vanished. According to the Globe and Mail, Jacqueline grew up in Trail, B.C. She dropped out of high school and at the age of 18 gave birth to her daughter. It was love at first sight. Everything Jacqueline did and every penny she earned was for her little girl. She loved being a mom. When her daughter was a toddler, she met a man who introduced her to heroin and she very quickly became addicted. She moved to Victoria to be near her father 
and get her life back. But in early 1998, she lost custody and her girl was sent to trail to live with Jacqueline's mother. This sent her spiraling out of control. She moved to Vancouver to get treatment, but found herself on the downtown east side at the Brandis Hotel. She had only been in Vancouver for three months when she disappeared. During her short time there, on the low track, she frequented the Wish Drop-In Center. Elaine Allen, who ran the Wish Center, recalled to Stevie Cameron that Jacqueline loved to read and was always digging through the piles of donated books at the center, looking for something new and exciting. She was a free spirit who wore hemp skirts. When Jacqueline stopped coming to the drop-in center, Elaine hoped she was off on some grand adventure, and she'd pop in soon to tell her all about it and pick up yet another novel. But sadly, that never happened. Approximately a month after Jacqueline's disappearance, 31-year-old Brenda Ann Wolfe became the second woman to vanish in 1999. We don't know the exact day in which Brenda went missing. We do know that the last time anyone recalls speaking to her was on February 17, 1999, when she spoke with her social worker and made an appointment for March, an appointment that Brenda would never make. According to the report of the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry, Brenda Wolfe was born in Lethbridge, Alberta, and was the oldest of five children. She was raised for a time by her father due to her mother's alcohol abuse issues but later she and her siblings moved in with their mom. Brenda had suffered sexual abuse at an early age by a relative of her father's. Despite her struggles through childhood, Brenda tried to move on with her life. She loved badminton and was good at it, winning ribbons and championships all throughout high school. Brenda loved to read. She was creative and artistic, loved country music, jazz, and dancing. In 1991, she graduated from the Del Mar School of Hairdressing and received her certificate as a hairdresser. In 1992, she met a man and had two daughters. Brenda was already struggling when she became pregnant for the first time, but she entered treatment and got clean. She wanted more than anything to be a good mother. Brenda and her common-law spouse and father to her children moved to Vancouver in 1996. She worked as a waitress and bouncer at the Balmoral Hotel in the downtown east side. Everyone there adored her and looked to her for protection. She was quiet but strong and well-respected by the women on the low track. Even though others looked to Brenda for protection, at home, she was being abused by her common-law spouse. At times, Brenda confided in her sister that she feared he would kill her. Eventually, she entered a shelter for women and escaped that relationship, getting an apartment and trying to build a life for herself and her girls. In February of 1999, she relapsed, lost her apartment and custody of her children. Just weeks after relapsing, Brenda vanished. Around the same time Brenda Wolf went missing, Gina Houston, remember Willie's biggest and best uh, BFF number two, was about to introduce two more people to Willie and the Picton Farm, Lynn Ellingson and Andrew Bellwood. Let's start with Lynn. Lynn Ellingson met Gina Houston at a women's shelter in Surrey. 
both women were there escaping abusive situations with their boyfriends at the time. One day at the shelter, Gina was talking on the phone with Willie, and Lynn just so happened to be right there. After Gina got off the phone, she told Lynn she'd been talking to her good friend Willie Pigton and asked if Lynn wanted to tag along with her as she went to meet him. Lynn really had nothing better to do at the time, so she went with Gina and they met Willie at a gas station near the shelter. Willie, of course, slipped Gina a cool 50, just to help her out. Gina was always coming to Willie for money. Gina couldn't stop telling Lynn what a great guy Willie was. He was just so damn helpful. She gave Lynn his phone number and told her to hang on to it because he was the kind of guy that would help you out in a tough spot. The kind of guy who would do anything for a friend. The shelter they were staying at was temporary. It provided housing for 30 days, and both Gina and Lynn's days were up. Gina moved to a basement suite in Port Coquitlam, and Lynn moved in with a friend in Delta. The pair kept in touch, though, and just weeks after they left the shelter, Lynn called Gina in a panic. She had moved out of her friend's house and tried to make things work with her old boyfriend, Ross Menard, but it didn't work out and he was tossing her and all of her worldly possessions to the curb. She needed somewhere to go, quick and in a hurry. So Gina suggested she head out to the Picton farm. Willie had a place she could stay, and not only that, she could work out there and earn a little cash. And that's just what Lynn did. She moved into the front room, which would normally be the living room, but this is Willie's trailer, normal doesn't exist. So that very front room was one he used as a spare for whoever was crashing there at the time. Nobody stays on the farm for free, so Lynn began doing paperwork for Willie and Dave and learned how to drive a dump truck. She cooked and cleaned, did all the grocery shopping, helped with topsoil orders, did yard work, and just about anything else Willie asked her to do. In return, she had a place to sleep, and Willie made sure she had enough money for food, all the drugs she could possibly want, and alcohol. Not long after Lynn moved in, Andrew Bellwood entered the picture. Andrew was a truck driver slash commercial fisherman with a criminal record a mile long and a serious cocaine habit. In early 1999, he was nearing the end of a rehab program and knew he had nowhere to go after he completed treatment. It just so happened that Ross Conwell was in that same program with Andrew and was set to get out at the same time. Ross made Andrew an offer. He could stay at his girlfriend's new basement suite in Port Coquitlam. Sound familiar? Ross was Gina Houston's boyfriend, the one she had went to the shelter to escape from. At this point, they were back together and Ross was going to live over at Gina's new place as soon as he got out. He invited Andrew to come stay, and with no other options, Andrew went to stay with Ross and Gina. But that was short-lived because Ross and Gina fought like cats and dogs, always yelling and screaming at each other. So Andrew started sleeping in the cab of his truck, but he still went over to see his friend Ross. One fine day, Gina asked Andrew to do her a favor. She wanted some hay for her horses, and since Andrew had a big rig, she asked if he'd mind going over and picking up some hay from the Picton farm. Andrew headed over and picked up the hay. Willie was there, of course, and the two hit it off rather quickly. 
Even though Andrew had just completed treatment, he had gone back to his old ways and was back doing dope and stealing things. Andrew Bellwood liked Willie Pickton, and the feeling must have been mutual because it wasn't long before Andrew was hanging out, doing odd jobs for Willie, and eventually living over at the trailer. Willie soon trusted Andrew enough that he asked for his help in stealing a trailer, slap full of lumber. And then one night in February of 1999, Willie started talking. It all started with an invitation for Andrew to join Willie to go out and get a woman. That really wasn't Andrew's thing, so he politely declined, but Willie didn't change the subject. He reached underneath his mattress and pulled out a pair of metal handcuffs, then a belt, and what appeared to be a piano wire with handles on each end. According to Andrew Bellwood in On the Farm, quote, he proceeded to tell me what he did with these hookers. Willie described to Andrew how he picked them up downtown, luring them in with drugs or money, going on to say that the women were often reluctant, nervous about leaving the area, but he would entice them to come to the farm with the drugs because, after all, they were addicts and whatnot. And once he had them in his trailer, he'd bring them into his room, get them on the bed, and position the woman on her knees with her face facing the bed while he was behind. He would then grab their hands slowly, bringing them back one at a time, handcuff, and then strangle them. This sick son of a bitch then climbed up on the bed and put actions to his words, demonstrating for Andrew Bellwood how he had strangled the women, adding that he would say to them, things are going to be okay now. That's a good girl. I honestly have no words. And it only gets worse. Willie then commented about how much people bled. Bellwood recalled in On the Farm. I remember him telling me that he'd hang them in the barn and bleed them and gut them. Whatever the pigs didn't eat, he'd throw in a barrel. Those barrels were the large drums we discussed way on back in the beginning that were taken to West Coast Reductions meat rendering plant. Willie tried again to convince Andrew to go with him to pick up a sex worker, even offering to pay. Andrew refused. And that must have made Willie a little suspicious of his new friend, because just days later, he told Lynn Ellingson that he was positive Andrew had been stealing tools. He had her call her boyfriend and another male friend over. As soon as Andrew arrived back at the farm, he was shoved down into a chair in Willie's office. And Lynn's boyfriend Menard and Menard's friend Ross accused him of stealing tools from Willie. Andrew denied it, but that didn't stop them from beating the ever-loving shit out of him. Andrew begged to call Gina's Ross, and they finally let him. He came over, and the men told Andrew and Ross they had 24 hours to get Willie's tools back, or they were both dead. Before they let Andrew leave, they made him clean up his own blood from the floor. Ross and Andrew hauled ass to Gina's house. And when Andrew told Gina what had just happened, she responded with, I told you so. I told you so. You're not, shouldn't be over there. Bad things happen over there. 
Hold up, wait a minute. Is this the same Gina Houston that told Lynn what a great and dependable friend Willie was? The same Gina Houston who introduced Andrew to Willie? Yes, yes it is. And if you're confused, welcome to the club. Andrew Bellwood hopped on a ferry and headed over to Vancouver Island to his mama's house. Once he arrived, his brother took him to the hospital. It turned out his nose was broken. He filed a report and never returned to the Picton farm. It wouldn't be long before Lynn Ellingson would wish she had joined him and hauled tail far, far away because she was about to stumble upon something on the Picton farm that would haunt her for the rest of her life. But that will have to wait for next week because we're running out of time. Stevie Cameron's book on the farm, Robert William Picton, and the tragic story of Vancouver's missing women can be purchased on Amazon or pretty much wherever you get your books. It is wonderfully written and details every aspect of this case. I'll put a link in the show notes. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. I'll be bringing you part number 10 of the Pig Farmer series next week, and I can't wait. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.